This is Rod Allen. And I'm John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. So, Rod, our guests today are uh, from Big Picture Schools, Andrew Frischman, David Banda, and Zelia Gonzalez. Rod, do you know much about Big Picture? I know a little bit about Big Picture, but mostly Big Picture UK. Uh, when they were uh, starting out in Doncaster, and I had some conversations with them about actually working for Big Picture at one point. So, um, interesting. Uh, yeah. So I know I know I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be to, to be knowledgeable. All right. Let me introduce our guests, and then we'll uh, we'll get into it. So, Andrew Frischman is the co-head honcho at Big Picture. I have known him for quite a while. We met up when he was a leadership doctoral student at Harvard and have always really just liked Andrew's vibe, always interested, curious, believing that students are creative, capable beings, and uh, we adults are mostly getting in the way, need to find ways to unleash their talents. So we hit it off uh, pretty much from the beginning. Good afternoon, Andrew. How are you? Good afternoon, Joel. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be reconnected. Always not sure about head honcho, but I, I, I guess I'm glad to be honchoing with people. And if we're if we're vibing, that's that's always something I'm down for. So a pleasure to be here. Thanks. And thanks for uh, creating the time and space to invite some uh, big picture students to become alums to this conversation. All right, great. Uh, yeah, and we have with us uh, Zelia Gonzalez, who is a graduate of big picture and also co-founded the Rebel Ventures Network, which she's going to tell us about today. Celia, welcome. Thank you so much. I'd like to point out, I also love Andrew's vibe. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Excellent. And uh, David Banda, last but definitely not least, has the honor of both graduating for big picture and now teaching at big picture at the Met in Providence. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Class of 2008. I came back 2015 as an advisor. Thank you all for having me today. Excellent. Welcome, David. Joel, it's great to have some honchos and some practitioners. Uh, <laughs> it's a good balance. It, you know, for every honcho, you should have a couple of practitioners. So, <laughs> so I think it's a great balance. Excellent. I was not trying to imply hierarchical structures or anything like that. I was just, uh... anyway, Andrew, could you just, for our listeners who may not know Big Picture, could you just give us just sort of like a brief thumbnail sketch of some of the sort of distinctive features of Big Picture, like how it might look different from your sort of like traditional comprehensive high school? Certainly. I'll start with where where you just left off there about uh, comparison to a, a comprehensive high school. So I think when you ask a lot of high school students in conventional high schools, how do you feel about high school? They often come back and say, it's kind of boring and I don't really feel known there and I don't get to do the things that I'm good at. I don't get to do the things I'm interested in and the stuff that you're asking me to do most of the time are not very connected to my experiences outside of school, nor are they really preparing me for the adult life or career that I want to try out. So Big Picture was co-founded by Dennis Lickie and Elliot Washer about 25 years ago. And it really started with the idea of fundamentally reinventing sort of the conventional high school experience. And so it's trying to attend to those questions. And it said, really, our, our approach is, starts with relationships. We believe fundamentally that you have to get to know young people really deeply. Uh, you have to get to know them and where they're coming from, their family, their communities, and so we set up an advisory structure to make sure that every young person is known really well. And that's more than just a homeroom on steroids. This is an advisor who stays with students for multiple years over the course of their development. Second, it's not just relationships for the sake of relationships. Uh, we're getting to know young people in order to understand their interests. And interest means not just like, hey, I think I might want to learn about that thing. It's what are the problems you want to solve in the world? What are the things that affect you? What are the passions that you have that you've always wanted to pursue? Where do you see yourself headed in the future? And so we, we create every young person as an individualized learning plan, and they're actually leaving the school, spending one or two days a week outside of the school in internships that are connected to their interests, connecting with adults who have expertise in an actual field. 
I think that's the last you know, really distinguishing characteristic for us uh, is that interest-driven real-world learning that young people are engaged in actual hands-on, and Rod used the word practitioner. Uh, we're helping young people become practitioners in the fields that they want to explore. This then raises one other really fundamental question, which is if every young person is learning something individually different, you can't have a common standardized assessment system. And so we believe that all young people should be presenting exhibitions, presentations of learning that involve their families, their peers, their mentors from their internship experiences, as well as educators. So it's a much more competency-based approach to, to learning in, in that way. And I guess the last thing I'll just add in is that you know, we really celebrate a whole range of post-secondary success. The things that we are most interested in are where are you 5, 10, 15 years after you graduate high school? And how did the sets of experiences you had, the things you learned, the people you connected to, how did that open up opportunities and, and shape the trajectories that you could have long after you graduate high school? Thanks, Andrea. So David, maybe I'll start with you. If you could take us back to your, I don't know, your eighth grade self or whenever you joined Big Picture, just Tell us a little bit about like where you were before you came to school as a student and then uh, what, what your experience was like uh, as a student. We'll do the teacher part in a little bit. So prior to coming to the Met, I went to a traditional Catholic school, which is very structured as far as this is what you need to do. This is it. This is the only way to do it. And, you know, this is the way we create it. And, and that's it. That was my educational experience the entire time prior to coming to the Met. When I came to the Met, completely different. One of the first things that happened was something called, we call a learning plan meeting. And at that meeting, we had a, a team of individuals. So my mother was there, uh, my advisor at the time, and I think my principal joined the meeting. And at that meeting, one of the first things they asked me was, David, what are you, what are you interested in? What are you passionate about? And I'm sitting there like, wait, I'm used to sitting at meetings where my mom is doing the talking or my teachers is doing the talking. Whenever I have to come in, it's, it's typically, you know, in the past, it was maybe because something happened at school. So they was just asking my opinion. It wasn't like, hey, like, what, what role do you like to play in your education, basically? And, and right away, I noticed that difference within my first week of coming to the Met. So for me, that was, that was, that was a difference right away. Mm. And uh, Celia, how about you? Same questions. Can you tell us a little bit about your sort of initial transition to the Met? Yeah, I had gone to a very traditional big middle school and I kind of just followed the path that everyone else did into a really big comprehensive high school. And I spent like my first semester there just like, pretty in shock about how like disassociative I was from what was happening in my learning. I had this realization as I was walking between like my sixth and seventh class of the day where I was like, none of these teachers know me <laughs> and they don't care about where I'm going or what I'm doing. And they don't know what my plans are and what I care about. And I'd been staying up till like two or 3 a.m., like finishing work, but it was all busy work. And I was like, this feels really empty. Like this, my education is feeling really, really shallow. So I looked and did research on a bunch of different high schools in the area. And I kind of realized like, oh, every other high school I go to is going to be exactly the same. <laughs> and then I stumbled across Big Picture, the Met Sacramento, which I was so lucky to find and be in Sacramento for that. And at first I, I went on a shadow day because that's what all the schools require is you got to like immerse yourself in it for half a day to see if like, see what it's like much like everything big picture does. You got to do a shadow day. <laughs> I was like, this is weird. I don't really like this, but I know that I need to do it because it's so incredibly different and I just need something different. And I'm so glad I did because it was the most weirdest different experience <laughs> I've ever had. And then the rest of my time followed a lot like what David said was like an individualized learning plan with, with an advisor and just like asking me what I wanted. And that was like, oh, I'm in the right place. Even if it's a little uncomfortable at first, it was definitely the right decision. So uh, Rod, I know you believe deep in your bones and giving students more agency and control. Like what, what are you hearing or thinking about as you hear David and Zelia talk? 
Well, part of me is reflecting on the experience that most of our kids have in 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 high school and in, in school, which is as as uh, David and Zelia have have described, sort of going along with the flow, not really thinking about anything, not having to make a lot of choices or decisions. It just kind of unfolds. Um, brought to mind of of a uh, of a headmaster that at a school I taught at when we were overseas, who who talked about students being school parcels. And you just kind of get delivered at school and, and you just sit there like a parcel and, and, and not necessarily engaging in your learning or in the activities in school and so on. So there's sort of the school parcel aspect to it. And, and I'm reflecting on how weird that initial visit must have been that Zelia talked about or, or, the, or the, the meeting, as David described, where all of a sudden I'm being not, not a passive participant in a meeting, but actually the the focus of the meeting and actually get to have voice. And I'd like to prod a little bit around how uh, students that went from recognizing you had a voice to really understanding that you had agency over your learning, moving from, I, I'm actually in a meeting, I actually get to speak and I get to talk about what I want for a change. Wow, that's kind of mind blowing to well, this is actually going to be real. I'm I'm actually going to be able to assert agency over over my learning experiences. So, what what was that that shift like as you moved into into really getting to that agency place? I think what really shocked me the first time I went to the Met, and like what made me so uncomfortable at first, was like how like communication was entirely different. Like the way that advisors talk to you, calling them by their first name, it was kind of like the autonomy in the relationships. Like I always like wanted but it was so weird to shift my body from this hierarchy to something that was more mutual and more I think and respectful it allowed me to like build trust with myself and build trust with my peers and adults in a way that like when I came out of it I had a very different relationship to like asking for what I wanted than other kids my age did especially in college when I was in college, realizing that that space wasn't exactly what I wanted or needed it to be, my the way that I talked to adults or like adults, because I was technically an adult, but, you know, older folks, administration, professors, like asking for what I wanted, I think it totally shocked my peers and shocked sometimes professors because I was like, well, aren't you supposed to be someone that's helping me in my learning? I was treating them as like advisors. And I think it like <laughs> shocked some people, but it got me what I wanted because I was just way more comfortable communicating my needs and expecting that if I'm in a space of learning that like I have a right to do that. And that's totally different than I think the traditional schools that a lot of my peers had grown up in. For me, it was it was it was surprising. It was shocking. It took it took a while for me to get used to, but it was easy for me to get used to because I think one of the things that I admire a lot about our school is our first three days of school every single year is focused around strictly culture building, right? So coming in day one, I expected coming from a Catholic school like, hey, get out get out your notebooks, get out your pencils. We got this is what you got to do. We, we're writing this on the board get to this. That wasn't a case, right? We started with something called pick me up where our staff actually took the opportunity to get to introduce themselves to us and talk about themselves outside of their jobs. And I was different. Like I didn't know anything about my teachers in middle school and they want for my teachers now in high school to come and talk about like, Hey, outside of work, here's some of the things I do. Like that right there just made me like, wow, it made me feel comfortable to open up. It made me feel comfortable to gain trust, right? And, and I think for me, doing that, focusing on those, like that initial first three days is just culture building. Let's get to know each other. Relationship, it made the ball roll a lot easier for me going into it because I was like, okay, this is definitely different. This is this is not the same and I'm ready for this, this uniqueness. Yeah. Listening to you both talk, I also makes me feel like higher ed also has a lot to answer for maybe less so in like small liberal arts colleges or something, but it, in big research universities, the sort of parcel vision that Rod laid out, this is a little dark, but I had a friend who wrote a piece in the newspaper or literary magazine or something freshman year, which was where she said, you know, if I died, like, I'm not sure that anyone would know for a few days, like my roommates would just sort of assume that like, you know, I found some other place to stay and so forth. And I was like, wow, this is, 
this is not a healthy way of human beings relate to each other. Like people need to be known and have a place. And um, Celia, were you nodding at that? Yes, so much so. I have so many thoughts about how higher ed is not not doing what it needs to do, especially because I had the privilege of coming from a big picture school. And then when I got to college, like I thought it was going to be this like pinnacle of education and all of these relationships. And I was going to be like deeply in conversation, exploring things. And it totally felt like a grown up version of that disassociative high school education that I had. And I was shocked at how like there were no consistent relationships for me unless I built them myself. My classes were all lecture unless there was like a special type of class that was given to me. And I thought there's so much room for improvement. You have so much money, like do something more, build relationships here. And like one of my dreams and everything that I do now is like trying to get closer to like reimagining and redesigning what orientation should be like in college and like what like cohorts of like learners in uh, an undergrad could be like. Yeah, Mm -hmm. dude. I, ah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, one big aspect of big picture is the internships. As David, I think said, you spend, you know, often two days a week out in the world. And I have to imagine that at least based on our experience, trying to arrange field placements for students, you know, that, that has its ups and downs. It like depends a lot, like where you land and who you land with, Would each of you like to tell me a little bit about some of the work you did sort of outside of school and what, what you learned for good or bad from that. Maybe David, we'll start with you. Yeah. So I was, I was fortunate to get internship in the field of education right away, my ninth grade year. And so I was interning with a, with a fed ed teacher who was also my my football coach who I learned a lot from this man. The classroom he was working with, um, he was working in a in an inner city elementary school in a behavior classroom. And a lot of my management techniques, my just my my calmness with students and all of that really derived from some of the things I I started seeing from him ninth grade year within his own classroom. And I also had an opportunity to to intern in another elementary school, which was in a more of a suburban setting. And that gave me a, a different perspective also. And years later, I'm still in communication with my mentors till today. They came to my college graduation. My mentor, oftentimes she, she inboxes me on Facebook or Instagram, like, hey, I see you're doing this. How's it going? I think like going back to what Andrew said earlier, like these relationships, they're not just relationships, for the sake of relationships, right? There's a lot more to it. I don't know, so much I can say about it, but I don't wanna spend on so. Mm-hmm. You're giving us a sense though. Zelia, how about you? Yeah, I started off slow with my internships. I actually started in elementary school classroom because I thought I wanted to be a teacher and I left after two weeks because I figured out that that wasn't for me, (laughs) Um, which was a great realization to have right away. And then I was like in a bicycle repair shop on campus for the rest of that year. And then I went to a nonprofit doing cultural arts work and then to the city of Sacramento. And I stayed with the city of Sacramento for like, three years, even after high school too. And I was thinking about it as um, David was talking. And I think like a lot of my friends had this experience as well. Like their internships started off kind of slow or with things that they didn't really, like they were experimenting. Of course, you know, like I thought I wanted to be a teacher. I was curious about bicycle repair. And later I spent three years with an organization because I was like, this is something I want to dive deeply into. And I think that's cool. I think it's so cool that we allow for like young people to decide the depth that they want to go to and their exploration. They'll get to a, a point where they want to get deeper because it's something that interests them. I think a lot of times when people hear that we like give young people so much autonomy, they're like, oh, are you sure you can give that much power to young people? Won't they just like slack off or blah, blah, blah. And it's, I think all of our experiences prove that that's just not true. When we are interested in something, we push ourselves. I had a friend who 
gave his son like the challenge of cooking a meal for their house once a week. And of course, it started off with mac and cheese every time that he would cook. And then eventually the kid got bored of that because he wanted to experiment and do more, got bored of his own cooking. And eventually he was cooking like these beautiful, big, extravagant meals once a week. And I think like that's that's something that I think about education, too, is like it's OK if it starts small because that snowballs. You're building trust with yourself around even what you want to explore. And that's how I think about internships, too. Andrew, in, in British Columbia, we, you know, work experience is a part of the grad program in, in, our, in our regular regular schools. Students need to need to or are encouraged to participate in work experience and they get credit for it and so on. But that doesn't always translate into the kinds of experiences that David and Zilia are talking about, which is a truly a, an internship. You know, work experience can be, you know, putting cans on the shelf at the grocery store, which isn't necessarily a fulfilling, yes, it shows you you need to show up on time and whatever theoretically that shows you. But as we encourage employers and community leaders to uh, engage kids in, you know, let's talk about supply chain, chain while you're working at the grocery store. Let's help you understand how the, the complexity of the ordering process. Let's like, let's see what it's really like to actually run a grocery store or whatever it might be. How do you help navigate that with the, from the employer perspective or from the community organization perspective to have them really understand what you're looking for in an internship, which isn't just, you know, free labor? Thank you, Rod and Joe. I'm glad you, you, you've happened to dig into something that is absolutely my core, you know, uh, one of the, the things I'm most passionate and excited about related to the big picture approach, which is that interest-driven internship experience. I think it's so fundamentally uh, transformational for, for young people. And, and for that matter, for adults, a lot of adults haven't done it either. One of the things I think I should have described in saying how our approach is, is significantly different Although the, the Met School in Providence, its full name is the Metropolitan Regional Career and Technical Center, which would situate it as sort of a CTE, Career and Technical Education School. Uh, but it was founded with the intention of innovating, like what should the 21st century career preparation process look like? And, and I think to be really clear, like we, we hold some contradictions in our head. One is that you absolutely have to listen to student voice and choice. It's about what they are interested in. And you have to take that really seriously. So it can't be ever the educator assigning a kid to a, a place. Like that just does not work. It's about, you know, you have to ask a kid sometimes 27, 37, 57 different ways. What are you interested in? What do you want to try out? And you might have to go try 5, 10, 15 places to, to, in order to help the young person connect. You know, it's not just what is the content. It's like, where is it happening? Who are the people you're going to connect with? What is it that you're going to do? There's a lot of, you know, it's situated learning. And so it's like, what's the situation? And yet we also believe that, and this is, differentiates it from some conventional career pathways uh, programs, is that I don't believe that any adolescent actually knows what they really want to do. And so we're not, we're, we're pretty different than most conventional CTE approaches in that we're not trying to say, okay, at 14 or 15 or even 16 years old, okay, now you're locked in. And now you're only going to be in this career trajectory. Our intentional goal is actually the opposite. We want every young person to have four to six eclectic and totally different experiences. You know, And so like I had students who interned with a photographer and a politician and an environmental activist group and you know, a luthier who did guitar, right? Like totally different things. You know, and I think students, to David's point, like when he first sat down in a meeting and said, you know, well, what are you interested in? You know, we have some young people who, I, I remember this one, one young man at the Met sat down and they were sort of going around the advisory and he was like, I wanna be an astrophysicist. That's what I wanna learn about. Now I'm not even, he later said he didn't know what an astrophysicist was. He just thought it sounded kind of cool and crazy and interesting. I was like, okay, great. Well, let's see what kind of informational interviews we can set you up. Well, lo and behold, that kid went on to intern at Brown University in the astrophysics department. By his junior year, was traveling up to MIT to work on like the rover, right? So it, like you, you got to take that really seriously. And so I think, I think that that is incredibly important. I also want to point out that, you know, what's the, the Steve Jobs quote about like the dots line up in the rear view mirror which is, it's not linear. Like learning is never linear that way. For every time that I can tell a story about a young person who 
interned in a hospital and is now an administrator in that hospital or interned with a senator you know, in Rhode Island and went on to work at the White House or interned as with a social worker and went on to become a foster care caseworker, right? Or like, I can tell that story. All those stories are true about students who were in my advisory in Providence. But every single one of those had four or five internships that were totally different. That to Zelia's point, like, I know I want to be a veterinarian. I've known that since I was eight years old. And then they go on on their first day, they have to like lance a cyst in a cat and they go, oh my God, this is disgusting. Like, I want to work with healthy animals. That's not what a vet does. You know, so like, or, oh my God, I've watched so much law and order. I know I want to be a lawyer. And then they go spend some time in a law office. And that's not what a lawyer does most of the time, right? So I, I think that we approach it from this emergent and organic learning experience as opposed to like, how do we engineer the perfect linear set to fill the set of careers that we think are coming? You know, the, the rate of change in the economy, you can't possibly predict, you know, 15, 20 years from now when our current high school students are sort of entering the maturity of their career lives, what those jobs are going to look like. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. So Zelia, maybe I'll start with you on this one. So what would you say to friends or family members or skeptical folks who are like, you did what? You spent two days a week in a classroom or in a this or in a that. What about all of the like content that like, you know, you should have been learning as a ninth, 10th, 11th grader. Like there's plenty of time for all that stuff later after college when you, you know, have learned all the stuff you're supposed to learn first. And then, you know, all that will come. Like, what, what, what would you have said to someone who made some version of that argument to you? There are a lot of people that have made that <laughs> argument to me <laughs> growing up and being in the high school and then trying to explain it to peers in college too. They're like, what kind of high school did you go to? <laughs> I think I explained or justified it to them or said like the beauty of it was that I may not know, you know, the plot and why all of these like, you know, senior reading books of high school, like all of that stuff. I might not know that stuff, but I know what I care about really deeply. And even better than that, in my opinion, is I know how to find information and explore information about what I care about really deeply. And when I was in college and I was really unhappy with like the structure of that school that I was going to like what it offered me it just felt really yeah just like a traditional comprehensive high school I felt really confident that I could identify what I need and then find that or make that happen and that's what the beauty of my school was it's like if I ever need to know information I feel really confident I can identify what I need and then figure a way to make that happen. And that's like the thing that you take with you the rest of your life is like, what is that like self-efficacy of like figuring out how to do that. And in college, I knew that I needed a mentor. So I found a mentor that I really liked and had like interesting interests that I was aligned to. And I just kept going to her office hours <laughs> once a week and just like sitting there and just like making small chat with her until, you know, we were friends. I knew that I needed relevancy because all of my classes were lecture-based and I was feeling just strung along in these really boring classes. So I created a project for myself that was related to, you know, the intersection of a few classes. And I knew I needed a learning community because that's what I missed the most from the Met, like going into college. And so I found a community and then made us all learn stuff together. <laughs> I like, uh, uh, found Mecha uh, in college and I was like, we're going to do cool stuff together. I made it an advisory. <laughs> so I think that's like the beauty of it is that like, maybe I didn't leave high school with all the same things that everyone else did, but I felt really confident I could pick up what I needed to in the future. I've definitely faced some of those questions, but, but the funny thing is the people who I faced those questions from um, as far as peers when I was younger, Today are those same individuals who are like, wow, maybe I should have went to the Met. And that's because I pointed out some of the closest people to me today are people who I was an advisory with. And those individuals were all doing different things, right? And we didn't do it a traditional way. Some of the folks who did it the tr traditional way, at this point, they're, they're still trying to figure things out. Like, who, who can I connect with if I need this? Who can I reach out to? Or 
if I'm having struggles or a challenge with this situation, like, who can I reach out to? For me, I've built this network since ninth grade year, since 2004, via mentors, via my advisors, right? Even, even mentors from my peers who may not have been my direct mentor, but I could reach out to my peer and be like, yo, I'm having some problem with my phones, man. He's like, oh, man, I had this mentor who I used to intern with back in ninth grade or 10th grade. Reach out to them. Like, I've built this network that I'm always able to tap into that it doesn't matter that I didn't do it the traditional way. I'm still good. And, you know, the people that was with me doing it that way, the non-traditional way, we're all st- still able to say, okay, we, we were able to get somewhere and we feel happy about the place we are today. Yeah, I second all of that, David. I, I think that, like, that lack of self-efficacy I've heard from people who didn't go to the Met Um, especially during the pandemic, especially during like tumultuous times in the last couple of years has led to a lot of hopelessness that is like really, really hard to see. Like there's a lot of people who, you know, are graduating college when I was graduating and just felt like I still don't know what I care about. I still don't see my place in this, my field, or even like why I'm graduating with this. And they are deeply unsure of what they want and how to get it. And I think that I realized like once I was trying to like turn all of these big picture principles into like an adult version for myself, I realized how much like other people wanted those tools as well. And that's everything that like I'm trying to do now is like give people access to like the adult version (laughs) of the Met. Like I created like a co-working like system flow, uh, I guess you could call it, that's essentially like an adult version of an advisory, how you can build that with your friends or with a small network for yourself. An idea open mic, which is essentially like a collaborative uh, version of exhibitions where not only are you presenting what you care about, but you're asking a question and asking people to get involved in their own way with what you're working on. And then like a design wheel that's like essentially like a design system uh, compass where you can guide any sort of like interest that you're working on as like an adult for yourself. That's kind of modeling the big picture, like learning goals. So all of that is because I realized that there was a lot of people that wanted this self-efficacy and there was no space in college or afterwards for adults to have access to those things. David, so you had this this great experience as a young person, b- building this sense of self-efficacy, and I loved uh, Zelia's term, I learned to trust myself, which is, you know, boy, if there's one gift we could give young people or any anybody, it's learning to trust yourself. And so obviously a lot of student agency. You, you had a lot of agency as a learner. So how does that play as a teacher? So now you're an, you're an advisor, a, 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 a teacher at, at Met. You know, would you have been as good a teacher as you are if you hadn't had the experience experience as a student, seeing it from from that perspective? Good question. Um, so further, I was taking back to college, right? When I was in college and I and I started doing my practicum um, and my student teaching, I would get feedback from my my peers and, and my professors, like, "Dave, you you seem kind of like a natural at this. You seem like you've done this before." And I would just laugh. I was like. That's because I have, right? I, I started putting lesson plans together my junior, senior year. Teachers started feeling comfortable enough to let me run their classes when I was in high school. So then going to college, when I started doing my practical and student teaching, some of those things that other students still were either nervous or st- still had to gain some experience with, I was already ahead of the game. Then coming back, to the Met from being a student, now I'm becoming an advisor. It's the same thing. Like I experienced it firsthand. I know some of the everyday struggles and everyday challenges that my students are concerned about. Right. And I'm able to kind of relate to them and 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 give them stories from my own personal experiences and at least, you know, try to help them out in whichever way I can. So Definitely, it made it a lot easier. It made me a lot more comfortable coming back and being able to do what I do here. And it, it's, it's, it was helpful. I've been actually teaching seven years. I feel like I've been doing it close to 20 years. For whatever it's worth, I had very similar experiences first to Zelia and then to David. I went to a, 
a different kind of school, but it was a progressive school and we called our teachers by the first name. And so we did a lot of discussion and, you know, we had a lot of agency and I also got to college and I also thought it was going to be this, like what I was already doing just on steroids with like people from all over the country who wanted to engage in these discussions. And I got there and everything was lecture except for one class. And in the one class, which was smaller, no one really wanted to talk. And I was like, what are, what are you people doing? Like we, we waited all of our life for this moment. And then when I got to graduate school and I started as a teaching fellow, you know, like I, I had ups and downs like everybody else, but like running a discussion didn't really seem that challenging because I'd been in like 10,000 discussions and had been watching my teachers all that time. So yeah, I think there's some deep imprinting that can happen early on. So that, I mean, that resonates a bunch. I think um, my experience is slightly different. So I, I, you know, I went to a high school that was actually in some ways quite conventional, uh, sort of somewhere in between. A lot of the sort of content classes were very traditional and very conventional. But this might resonate for you, Joel. Like my best and most powerful and formative learning experiences happened outside of the classroom. Even the school is sort of known and prestigious and elite for its academic rigor. The things that were powerful for me was like the summer internship I had in an aquarium and the like after school volunteer tutoring I did in a school. Right. And the project that I put together with a few friends and a mentor to build a blimp. Right. It was these outside like interstitial spaces where the learning was really powerful and happening. And then maybe to Rod, to your question. So my my first five years teaching were in very conventional environments, right? Like pretty, you know, pretty standard. And I was, you know, I'm certified as a biology and general science teacher. I taught some math and science, pre-algebra, life science, physical science, biology, honors biology. And the five years I spent doing that, I felt like my job was just to be a conduit of information, right? I was just like, your job is here's the content in these textbooks, get into those kids' heads so they can spit it back on some exams. And then after that, move on to the next one. And the kids, same thing, they're going to move on to the next one. It wasn't about like, how did these learning experiences really matter in the lives of young people that will make a difference years later on? And so when I sort of first saw the, the, the Met and at the present, I saw a presentation, I was in grad school, they sort of brought in, I was like trying to figure out where I might want to teach after I got on my master's program. And, I, and they, uh, there was a, a student, an advisor and a principal from the Met who came to do one of these seminars of like innovative things happening in Rhode Island education. You know, and the first school that presented said, through this new math curriculum, we've bumped our scores 7%. It's like, well, that's okay. Like, that's kind of nice. And then the next one said, like, we've introduced a new restorative justice program and we've decreased our suspensions by 12%. It's like, well, you know, that's also like nice and important. And then this young person got up and spoke about how they arrived at the map. Basically the story you just heard from Zelia and David, they showed up from a conventional environment where they hadn't been loving it. They got to do these things they, they were interested in. They connected with these adults. And I was like, that thing, like, I want to go be a part of that. That sounds like the most important learning experiences I ever had myself. And I don't know what it is, but I want to be a part of that. And then I will tell you that when I was lucky enough to become an advisor at the Met, it was shocking. And it was almost traumatic for me because I had been so acculturated to the idea that I, as the educator, had the power, had the knowledge, had the control, was the one who directed things. And so there was a tremendous shift for, that I had to do in terms of like, it is going to be delegated power. And my job is not to fill these empty vessels, but to help them like individually figure out what it is they wanna do and collectively learn and make sense with each other. I don't have the answers and the knowledge. In fact, if I'm doing my job right, Within a month at any internship, that young person should know way more than I do about every topic that they're studying. It was a radical shift. I think that's what I'm probably most excited about uh, in, in, in sort of like what will happen in the next 10 to 20 years is that even up to this point, there are now you know, 75 big picture schools across the country, a couple of hundred around the world. But I would say 95 to 98% of the educators and administrators working in big picture schools did not attend one themselves, right? David is like a pretty rare exception to that. Like across our whole network, I know for a fact that there are 
fewer than you know 50 educators who are alumni of our schools who are teaching there. What I want to see is like we're most of us as educators administrators have our own sort of like infused experiences from more conventional learning experiences. I'm psyched to see like what do David and Zelia and so many others like what are they going to do as they do in education? You know like we went from conventional to big picture, like where are they going? Like that's gonna be the next like step. And, and how do they come back and inform what happens in big picture schools? Like that to me is what's gonna be really, really exciting. Before we leave the, the teacher aspect. So how were you supported as a non big picture teacher in trying to get your head around the expectations, the norms, the, 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 the ways of being in that school? What are you finding to be effective ways to support the the 90% of the teachers that you bring on board that that have not had those transformative learning experiences, or at least from, from the mat, you know, transformative learning experiences as teachers? Because I think that's more indicative of, you know, transformation efforts around the world, certainly in British Columbia, is helping teachers become facilitators of, of transformative learning and, and learning experiences when they haven't necessarily themselves experienced that as learners. So I think, I think you're getting to like a really important sort of crux of the matter, which is, you know, currently most teacher education and certification programs are not set up to train folks explicitly to work in big picture schools. Now we forged a whole lot of interesting partnerships where people go, you know, come do their teacher residencies or practicums or student teachings in big picture schools. That, that certainly is one way. The other thing that I, I want to add, well, two things. One, we find that educators in big picture schools can come from a pretty diverse and you know eclectic array of backgrounds. You know, it's not necessarily like if they're overly sort of married to like I am a history teacher or I am a math teacher or I am a physics teacher. Like that can actually be problematic. We need them to be generalists. We need them to be thinking about like learning. Like their expertise should be in students and activating the power of students not in any one particular content or discipline. And so that means sometimes some of our most powerful educators have a background in special education. Some of them are elementary or early childhood ed because they're thinking more holistically and thinking about student growth. Sometimes they come from youth development organizations who are working outside of school. Often they've spent time as coaches, whether it's in athletics or in the arts. And so we often find that it's really important for them, you know, if all of their experiences have been in conventional education without some really provocative questions being asked, that can be challenging. I'll also say like, there's a, a pathway where we've seen folks who have been mentors to big picture students get interested and want to come and shift into education and start working in a big picture school. We've seen parents of students who attend a big picture school go out and get certified to start teaching at big picture schools. The one thing I also wanna say though, is that we have you know, a majority of our, our big picture uh, educators are really learning when they come into the school, how to do this job. And so you know, the, it's not just the young people who experience sort of individualized learning plans and being part of an advisory and having mentors. Those structures are sort of fractal within our organization. And so whether that's for an educator, you know, an advisor or for a principal, we're doing those same things. As they're coming in, we're helping them think about who are you? Where are you coming from? What are you looking to learn? Who are gonna be the mentors that support you? Who are the other advisors who are part of your, your sort of cohort? Um, and, and so I think that that's, you know, we, we view educators as on their own developmental journeys and, and arcs. And then the last thing I just wanna add is that I don't think it's really only about individual teacher or educator training. You could train teachers all day. And if they walk into schools where they don't have the ability to shift what's happening in their classroom or the school, they're basically just getting mowed down and they're gonna to regress to the mean and go back to the conventional approaches. It, it's really about school leadership. If you can work with school leaders to lay out the kind of vision where the school leader knows that I'm helping to, to train and support and bring along this educator, and it might be a couple of year journey, like that's what you need to do. Big picture as an organization, our main sort of entry point and sort of place of highest leverage is to work with school leaders and then how to support and train educators and also how to navigate up into the system to make sure that your authorizing environment and governing structures don't like impede your ability to support that vision. Hopefully that's a helpful, I, I see some nods from, from David. Is that what you've experienced as well? Yeah, no, I mean, as someone who, who's living it and, um, 
and with colleagues who who didn't graduate from the Met necessarily, I think administration and, and the, the big picture network as a whole do a very good job of being intentional about providing opportunities to to really understand what it is to work for an organization like this. We oftentimes have various trainings. Throughout the week, we have various opportunities to to, to meet with our, our grade pair, other advisors, our principal. There's tons of opportunity to really, really understand it if you're someone coming in without any um, background knowledge. I think is that willing, though, to be open to not the same, right? To, to, to be open to something that you're not so used to, that willingness is, is very important. Yep. So changing gears a little bit, Zelia, it seems like you've taken a lot of your entrepreneurial energy that has been inculcated in all your time at Big Picture, and uh, you've founded this thing called uh, Rebel Ventures. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it kind of segues from the last thing you were talking about too. Like I thought I wanted to be in education or I thought I wanted to be a teacher because that's kind of the entry point that I most people think about when they think about education. And then I realized I didn't really want to do that. My strength came in working with adults and doing this kind of like a pyramid scheme Andrew's talking about of like training the teachers that then go and help the other folks. <laughs> and um, I realized that I wanted to be on top of the pyramid. Uh, just kidding. But <laughs> I wanted to... Um, I found that my strength was in facilitating and like systems design work. And I've actually modeled that practice for myself off of the advisories and off of advisors. And like, I describe myself as like, and most advisors, this is how I would explain it to other people too, as like the learning practice is rock climbing and uh, students are on the wall or the people that we're working with and co-designing with are on the wall, climbing and making the moves themselves. They are finding the next hold and working towards the goal that they've identified for themselves. And as this advisor or co-designer or facilitator person, I'm the belayer. I'm the person that like sets down a soft mat for them when they like miss a hold. And I'm the person that makes sure that they don't hurt themselves and can ask them, you know, deeper critical thinking questions. Now I'm leaving the, <laughs> the rock climbing metaphor, but can ask them questions that like push the learning deeper. And that's like what I do now is work to redesign young adult and adult engagement with people kind of along the principles of the design principles that I gained from the Met, kind of just making the the Met style for adults, <laughs> kind of trying to put that into as many places as possible. And so after I work with clients on redesigning something, I create like a template version of that and publish that for free. So that's what I'm working on now is like making open source access to all of this like adultified or open version of big picture tools. I don't know if Andrew loves that I'm putting all this stuff out here for free. Okay, he does love it. Okay. <laughs> but I was like, I'm just going to take everything you have and put it for free on the internet um, <laughs> and make it easy for people to use. And uh, Andrew's been my biggest supporter, actually. <laughs> I have to fight a lot of people to be president of the Zelia Gonzalez fan club. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and I think, I mean, it aligns, I think, just with our organizational approach of, you know, we're not about scale, right? And we're about spread, you know, total, total, quote unquote, total victory for us does not look like, you know, we landed another 50 big picture schools. Like we, we just, we are not a colonial, imperial, evangelical entrepreneurial organization. That's just not the way we think about our work. For us, we approach victory when all young people and learners for that matter are able to forge deep relationships go out and engage and develop their interests and have real practical experiences that have long-term effects that are beneficial for them and their communities. I was hearing some of what David was describing just earlier about the kinds of connections he has, not only across his advisory, but with his mentors. I'm like, that's the empirical definition of social capital that you just laid out. That's what Robert Putnam talks about when he talks about bowling alone, or he talks about other, you know, or Lisa Delpit, like, like, He's describing richer, more diverse social network experiences that cause us to be connected to each other and collaborate for common collective advance. So I don't know. I was getting a little choked up hearing that because like, that's what it's about. Like that's, that's an outcome. Like it's not a 10th grade English or math score. Like an outcome is, is that. I really like that distinction between scale and spread and also the idea that they're 
are probably some common principles of how human beings should treat each other and what sorts of experiences or environments are likely to, you know, connect deeply to human beings and help them flourish. There's probably some commonalities in those things. But then from there, I mean, just remix, you know, that it all depends on the context and the setting and there are 10,000 ways to do it. And since it's all so dependent on the adults involved being passionate about what they're doing, letting them, letting is the wrong word, the more that they design those things, the more invested they're going to be in them and the, you know, the further and deeper it's going to go. So I, I very much agree with your your social movement-esque uh, vision. It's interesting you said the letting. I mean, I think that that reminds me of sort of like a, one of Debbie Meyer's most powerful ideas, a, a hero of mine and, and, you know, a friend and collaborator of our network. You know, she talks about young people can't go out and create democratic institutions unless they experience them themselves, right? And I just think about when you just said letting, that makes me think about, you know, when do we like let kids go to the bathroom? Right. So there's something ridiculous about the fact that you can have a high school senior sitting in a classroom who's told where to be, what to do, what we're going to study, what the right answers are, and when they're allowed to get up from their seat and use the bathroom. And a couple of months later, they're out in the real world. They're over 18 years old. They can legally vote. They can enlist in the military. They can serve on a jury. No one tells them what the, the questions are. The answers are not in the back of the book. So what are you doing over those four years of high school? to prepare young people to thrive as adults. Like there can't just be a cliff where you have like no self-efficacy or no autonomy. And then suddenly you're expected to go thrive as an adult. It doesn't work that way. And so many people are saying, oh, well then the answer is go to college. But that it's the same thing, There's that same issue. There's a cliff right after college that does the exact same thing. And I think the distilled opportunity that like I'm trying to share with adults now is that same practice of building trust with themselves and building trust within a community so that they can like do that, practice it, feel it so that they know what that feels like when they're trying to build that as an adult after, after they don't like have the support anymore when it's really the, the, the cliff. Ron Berger has a good one on the high schools that, you know, the ninth grader who's you know, every minute of her day is assigned and she's being told like when she can go to the bathroom, well then like leave school and like go babysit for somebody's baby. Like your absolute, like, like most precious thing that you have, you're going to like trust this person's life to this person. Yet this person, like, you know, four hours earlier, couldn't choose like when to go to the bathroom or not. So absolutely. And I think, I mean, one of the things I think we've learned over the course of the pandemic is just that there, there was this belief that like the best learning and, or maybe all the learning is happening in the schools. And the reality is like, there's been a whole lot of stuff happening that young people have been involved in when they've been at home. So I, I, I think it's a mistake to only have a deficit framing about that. I think we need to look at like, what is it that young people have been doing while they're at home? Because a bunch of them have delved pretty deeply into a whole lot of interesting stuff that school was in the way of before, right? Mark Twain never let a never let schooling get in the way of a good education, right? There's uh, something to be said for that, and and perhaps that cliff uh, helps helps us understand some um, voting patterns that we see uh, from time to time. Of uh, oh, you're making it political, aren't you? Everything. Yeah, I know. No, I'm not. I'm Canadian. We don't do politics. It's 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 okay. Uh, uh, but... Recent events would would slightly differ with that, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Well, luckily we sent the trucker convoy south, so I hear it's wending its way to DC. So, but but one thing we Canadians do believe in is the lightning round. We want to thank you for your thoughtful, deep answers, and that time is no no more. We're going for short, shallow, top of your head answers, uh, lovingly known as the lightning round. So we can go in any order that you like. But we're looking for a really one, two word kind of an answer. What's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong? David. Getting straight A's leads to success. <laughs> Thank you. Celia. That SEL is an add-on that everyone needs and not the foundation that everyone needs. And that means like trust building really in the best way. Andrew. 
I think the, the preoccupation with instructional minutes and the idea of learning loss over the pandemic. You know, I saw, I saw my own children once school was out of the way, their literacy took off because they were sitting around with a lot of books and they didn't know what else to do. So they read. Hmm. The end of seat time. Uh, fill in the blank. I used to think, and now I think. Andrew, we'll start with you. I used to think, and now I think. You should have um, had a lot of practice at this. Yeah, I gotta say. <laughs> I used to think that the focus we had on relationships, interests, and practice were important. And now I think they are the most vitally important for helping resiliency and long-term thriving. Zelia. I used to think that college was a noble goal for education. Um, and now I think that it's a waste of time. <laughs> Hot take. David. I used to think, and I'm going to go a little sideways with this one, my sports background, but I used to think that if you put together a team with a bunch of all-stars, that they're automatically going to win. And that is not the case because I'm seeing my Lakers struggle. And then you met Kyrie Irving. Yeah. Um, There's some good extrapolations from that too. That was really good. Yes, I, didn't go, I didn't want to go too deep into it, but yeah. I love that one. All right. Uh, question three. What's one thing that traditional schools should stop doing? I think one thing traditional schools should stop doing is focusing so much on test results. All right. Celia, what do you think? I'm going to double down on that. And I'm going to say like cutting playtime. I think that's a massive mistake. I think we should triple playtime in all schools, even adult schools and young adult schools. I'll give you a trifecta. Three, honor rolls. All you're doing is telling 95% of the kids that they're not honor roll students. B, gifted and talented programs. All you're doing is telling them most of the kids are not gifted or talented. And C, exam magnet schools. All you're doing is like creaming out a bunch of kids and diminishing the experiences on both sides. So three hot takes, hopefully. It's a bold group. And last but not least, what's one big misconception that people have about big picture? Something people think about big picture that in your experience is not true. Celia. I think the biggest misconception that I hear from a lot of traditional uh, educators is that, oh, like when you take away the titles of teachers, that there's just like this explosion of disrespect and that like all boundaries go out the window. And I think that's like the biggest misconception. And I think stepping into our school, you see how much respect there is between teachers because we get to know them and they get to know us and that there's not this like false hierarchy that exists, but this real exchange of knowledge and trust. For me, some people think that we have too much fun or take too many trips with our students, not really understanding the cultural and relationship goals that we're aiming at. The value of joy. <laughs> yes, the joyful learning experiences. I'll build right off of that piece, actually, and say, I think it's about rigor and what people think rigor has to look like. And does it have to be grim, grinding, unpleasant? I think we also got stuck on the word rigor instead of vigor. I feel like there can be incredibly vigorous learning that is deep and intellectually challenging that doesn't look like memorizing stuff for an AP exam. And I would say that you know, creating an incredibly complex culinary meal or learning how to build a guitar or how to take apart and reassemble a combustion engine. These are as deeply or more deeply rigorous and vigorous as any sort of conventional psychometric exam. A wordle challenge, rigor, vigor. <laughs> I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank all three of you for joining us today. A rich, rich discussion and Nice to see all parts of the hierarchy, which I know you're trying to smash down, but 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 re but represented and to have have that real practitioner view and perspective of students and and teachers and whatever Andrew is a what what do we call a honcho um, anti honcho anti honcho. Um, uh, so thank you so much for uh, for this uh, really thoughtful conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.
Thanks so much. Grateful for the time and for the, the provocative comments and, and questions that you guys have been asking uh, and, and looking forward to future episodes of Free Range Humans. May, may all humans get to enjoy the free range. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, I, thank I, you guys. I, I, I like that. I like that. We you might know, change we that. We can, we can splice that in here and there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this is Rod Allen. And this is John Leda. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, our guests have been Andrew Frischman, David Banda, and Zelia Gonzalez. And a big thank you shout out, as always, to our producer, Gino, who makes this sound really good. Thanks, everyone.